Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's up, boys and girls? Welcome. Right now, you're listening to episode 165 of Chat with Traders. I hope you're doing fantastic, and I hope you're about to enjoy this episode with my guest, who is an equities and also, to a lesser extent, I believe, an equity options trader, Michael Samuels. So I was actually introduced to Michael by an experienced trader and a fund manager who described Michael as being hands down the best trader I know. And having seen his performance, I can also tell you he is an advanced trader. Michael once traded for First New York and Apex Capital, and now he trades his own money under the banner of Broom Street Capital. Michael describes himself as being an event-driven trader. He focuses on news flow surrounding mergers and acquisitions, shareholder activism, and fundamentals to seek out what he calls valuation disconnects. Coming up, some of the things you'll hear about include Michael talking about merger ARB strategies, including examples, stories of excessive due diligence, which I think you'll get a kick out of, time during his career where he's made mistakes, and more importantly, what he's learned from these mistakes, and plenty more. But I think there was also much more we could have discussed too. So at some point, I'm really keen to try and get Michael back on for a second episode. And just the last thing I'll mention here is, Michael has also recently begun hosting a podcast of his own. It goes by the name of According to Sources. We talk a bit about this right at the end, but if you're curious to know more about Merger Arb and event-driven trading, take a listen to it because he's doing a great job. That's according to sources. Now, folks, on with the show. Here is Michael Samuels from New York City. We're just getting, I'm not sure how the earning system or, you know, in terms of timing is over there, but... Right now, like earnings season, sort of like we're just getting going, you know, like the uh, we got the banks last week and now we're getting some of the big tech names. And so we saw Netflix last week and Microsoft is coming out any minute. But 
for me, you know, there was a few trades that I got into today that uh, I got I got taken I got whipped around a little bit today, and it all ended up fine. But I had those moments where you you know I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to lose this much, and you know. <laughs> Domino's pizza and, uh, and, and then, you know, it comes in, but just, uh, got too big before a conference call, which is always a big mistake. Uh, right. Yeah. No, it is earnings season over here as well, which has been uh, very interesting. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's hear a bit about how you actually got into trading. Like where did you even start out? So, um, I would say that I'm, you know, from an early age, and I mean, uh, like 10, you know, I know that sounds crazy, but uh, I wasn't really good at sports and those sort of things when I was young. Uh, so I didn't gravitate to those, to those things. And um, when I was 10 or 11, you know, my grandfather gave me some stock for a birthday. And for some reason, I was just extremely interested in, in the tracking of that. And I would ritualistically wake up in the morning. This is when you had to still look up quotes in the New York Times every day to see how your stock had done and see, you know, I, I had shares of Coca-Cola, like 10 shares. And I would, and I would see that. And, uh, you know, from at that moment, and this is, I'm 37. So this is like 1990. Um, and I would see, well, what are the, you know, they would list stocks. What are the most active? What went up the most? What was, what moved around the most? And you would see the same stocks every day at that point, which was Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, all those sorts of things. And so I wanted to make more money or I wanted to make money so that I could invest in those. But I was only, you know, 10, 11 and 12. So the only way that I could make money, and this was what my friends were doing, was to be a caddy at the local golf course. So I was a caddy at Wingfoot Golf Course from, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. And uh, I was able to take that and to take some bar mitzvah money. And my parents were you know, encouraging. And they let me just put that money into those crazy tech stocks, you know, like the Intel's and the Microsoft's, uh, Cisco's. And, uh, the, as far as I knew, stocks only went up and I didn't learn for a long time that, uh, that that wasn't the case. <laughs> so when did you eventually learn that stocks do come down also? So, uh, I think I had a very grand plan in my head. So let's say from age 13 to 17, I saw, uh, you know, let's say five or $6,000 that I had been able to make catting and in, in bar mitzvah money, that sort of thing. And that grew to maybe 900,000 or something quite close. And I didn't understand. And again, as I grew older, I got bolder and doing, you know, getting involved in some of the crazier tech names, the names I like really, you know, true garbage that I didn't understand was garbage, but just went up a lot. And so I'm trafficking in these garbage names and I'm seeing my P&L go crazy. And I maybe I'm a freshman in college at this point. And I just thought, well, I'll just sit on this stuff. And by the time I'm out of college, I'll be worth like $5 million, right? And I'll be able to move to New York City. I'm going to buy this apartment. Life's going to be great. And by the time I was a sophomore in college, which is a year later, that $900,000 portfolio was probably worth about 150. And so I probably cashed out around 175, something like that. <laughs> now, you told me this the other day when we had a, a quick chat beforehand uh, that you'd turn that 5K or thereabouts into somewhere close to 900,000, and my jaw almost hit the floor. How did that feel at the time? Like, I just can't imagine how crazy that would have been for you been like a you know 15 16 17 year old teenager like 
did you tell your mates about it? Like, how, no. how were you feeling? <laughs> no. Well, first of all, it just felt like a game, right? Because, well, for starters, while my parents would be very willing to encourage me to do this, there was no way they would ever let me touch that money. You know, so to me, it was like, oh, I'm playing this game uh, and I'm watching this money go up and down. But because I can't touch it, it's not like I'm going to turn 16 and go buy like a Corvette. Like that wasn't going to happen. So instead, I was just saying, well, how big can I make this? And no, I didn't tell my friends because that's one of those things like you're I always felt awkward talking about that sort of stuff. And, you know, I grew up in like a very um, middle class neighborhood and to say, hey, I just, you know, made this crazy amount of money would have felt weird and it probably would have made me feel a little bit isolated uh, from my friends, if that makes sense. Uh, so, no, it was really just a hobby that I explored with my family. Okay. And what did your family think of this? They thought it was amazing, but they also, and you know, to this day, it's, you know, my whole family, we have a family seafood business and, uh, you know, but they're hobbyists as well. They, they love the stock market, but they never really not much evolved from where I was in those days, which was you buy, you hold and you watch it go up. And, and so they were of the belief that, Hey, by the time you just like me, by the time you get out of college, you're going to have five million dollars. So every, everyone was on board. There wasn't someone that tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, maybe you should like take something off the table or, hey, you're in this uh, pet company that sells pet food online. Uh, they don't make any money. Maybe you should sell it. No one was ever doing that. OK. <laughs> wow. What a crazy time. Crazy time. I wonder if I had been trading now as an adult in that time. Uh, what I would be like, but you know, we'll never know. So what did you do after college? Like your, your 900 grand had shrunk into 150. What did you do after getting out of college when you didn't have that $5 million that you were thinking you may have? Dream deferred, right? So I guess, uh, you know, for me, I had two passions growing up. One was investing uh, and the other one was broadcasting and the radio. And if you ask me, you know, when I was 12, what do you want to do when you grow up? I wanted to be on the radio. My heroes growing up were Howard Stern and we have a we have a local broadcasting station here in New York called WFAN, which is, has these two guys named Mike and the Mad Dog. So I, I listened to Howard Stern and I listened to Mike and the Mad Dog and I wanted to be like them. And so I, I uh, went to school as a broadcast journalism major. And, uh, you know, by the time I was done, I had three offers. And the three job offers were in, one was in North Dakota, one was in Texas, uh, one was in, in another uh, outpost in the United States that you just wouldn't want to live in. And so uh, I was like, okay, so what can I do to blend these two interests together? And uh, I got a job at CNBC working for a show called Street Signs, which at that time was hosted by Ron and Sana. And I would be uh, sort of a producer, researcher, and I would be able to kind of blend the mix uh, of loving finance and the liking of broadcasting and television and, you know, the media. From there, uh, season one of Mad Money with Jim Cramer started about three months after I worked there. And he was a stock picker, you know, see, like the show I was working on at that point was very political based. It was like very macro. And here was a guy that came along and was saying, you know, buy Juniper, buy Microsoft, buy whatever it was. And, and I was very gravitated towards that. So I made a request to switch and get on that team. And I did. Uh, and I probably, 
I don't know if he would remember me because I only worked on that show for a year. But if he did, he would probably say, oh, he was the really annoying guy who emailed me all the time. <laughs> Why would he say that? <laughs> he would say that because, and in fact, they banned me from emailing him, I think, after a while. Because every morning I would pitch him on what I thought a great trading idea would be. And I would like scour stock message boards and I'd read every newspaper I could find. And, and, and I, I thought I was being helpful, you know, cause my role was to be a researcher and producer on the show, but I was just inundating him with so much stuff that in the end he would say, Hey, you know, Mike, send me one email a day in the morning and, and, and we'll leave it at that. And there was an incident. I don't know if you guys uh, remember, there was a character named Lenny Dykstra. He was, um, a famous baseball player in the United States. And then he actually made it on our show, 60 Minutes, which is a news magazine, very popular in the United States. And uh, Dykstra worked for thestreet.com. And Dykstra would pitch stuff to Kramer. And he eventually went to prison. But at that time, he was sort of like Kramer's sidekick. And so Dykstra was looking at the exact same message boards and and, uh, you know, the equivalent of, I guess, what Seeking Alpha is today, we had back then. And uh, I remember we both pitched the same stock on the same day. And uh, there was a huge incident over who had pitched it. And, um, yeah, so like I said, I think I was more a thorn in his side than, than, a, than a help. But uh, at the time, it was a good experience. <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you that actually. What, what did you make of the whole experience? Like, did you learn a lot from working on that show? I guess it forced you to be researching every day. So, I think at that point, you know, I'm 23, I'm right out of school. And because I kind of thought I was hot shit, because I had, you know, been looking at the stock market for a long time, that I thought I knew more than I did. And I thought, um, you know, and, and by working for him and looking at things on a daily basis, uh, I thought I was only learning more. And, and that had the effect, I think, of sort of inflating um, my abilities or inflating what I knew. And of course, when you're sitting in front of a screen on a daily basis and not, you know, in trading and instead of researching and, and looking at things from, you know, the, the far outside, it's really different. You know, it's very easy to make a broad call and say, oh, I, you know, I like the fertilizer sector. Here is why. But then when you actually sit down at your trading desk and you have to do it and, you know, generate money on a daily basis, it's really different. So I learned a lesson, but I would say I didn't learn it till later, if that makes any sense. When did you kind of transition from that into like the professional trading arena? Sure. So uh, after a year of that, uh, I got sick of making TV money. And uh, I don't know if you guys, you know, you're 24, you're living in New York City. It's tough to live on 30 grand a year uh, and have an apartment and, and go on dates and, and live in New York City. So uh, I was, you know, and also just doing the research, I had really gotten that stock bug back. And I was presented uh, through a friend of a friend an opportunity to get at a trading desk uh in like an apprenticeship program at First New York Securities, which was one of the bigger, it still might be today, one of the bigger proprietary trading shops in the, in the United States and had been around since the 70s. And, uh, you know, I clerked for someone for a year. I got yelled at on a daily basis, like, you know, like the worst stuff you would ever say to someone. 
uh, is what my boss would say to me on a daily basis. But it's like, that's just like that came with the territory, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very fraternity house atmosphere, or at least it was on that desk. But when you're surrounded by all these traders, uh, you know, they probably had 200 guys, you learn, you know, what strategies are going to suit you, what strategies are not going to suit you. And, and at this moment also was like a, a very pivotal moment in terms of technology. That year when I was clerking for my boss, I would probably call down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange 50, 60 times a day and just, you know, try to get flow from different specialists and try to get flow from floor brokers. And, um, you know, obviously that's a, like a very ancient thing. No one would ever do that today or very few. But at that time, it was necessary just, you know, to see uh, how many buyers versus how many sellers were involved in a name. Okay. Now, I just want to backtrack a little bit. I'm interested to know how you actually got into the firm. Like, how did you get an in? I know you said you had a friend there, but what was it that they saw in you or how come you were able to land the job, like, besides having a friend that worked there? Okay, sure. So, the foot in the door was getting an interview. And uh, do you want to know, like, how I got the interview or what, how the interview, I think, was handled? Maybe a little bit of both. I mean, I'm mainly asking the question because I know that there'll be people listening to this who are interested in getting into a proprietary trading firm or something like that. So I think it'd just be interesting to hear how you were able to get into it, you know, because you come from a journalist role. I mean, sure, you had an interest in the stock market, but, you know, you had a chance to now get into a professional trading firm. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So if you had looked at my resume at that point, you know, you would have seen someone uh, with no financial internships, someone that uh, went to, uh, you know, a broadcasting school. Uh, my resume wasn't sparkling by any, by any means in terms of getting on a prop desk. But I did have that Kramer angle, you know, and, and at that point, we're talking season two of Mad Money. He was still sort of a big deal. And I was able to literally get that interview uh, because my sister's fiance at that point his cousin was a partner at this firm. So I begged her to ask him to get me an interview. And that's how I got in. So really lucky in that way. And then in terms of the interview, and you know, I can speak to this a little bit more because later in my life, I ran my own training program at a, at a different prop shop that I worked at. What I really tried to sell myself on is the idea that I live, breathe, eat, have an unbelievable passion for stocks. And, and when people would come to me and interview with me, those are the people that you really want to hire. Not the people that are like, I want to make this much so I can buy this car. I want to make this much so I can party and live that Wall Street life. You know, you want people that love trading, that love the stock market. And, and the truth was, it, you know, for me, I didn't have to pretend it was a genuine feeling. So, you know, for anyone that wants to get into that field, I mean, for your own good, for your own success in the field and for your own, I guess, well-being, you should want to love it. And if you don't love it, then you're probably in the wrong business anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what was your experience like at uh, First New York? Like you said that you were clerking for a while. How long did that last for and, and what did you, what sort of role did you slot into once you kind of moved up the ladder a little bit. Right. So clerked for a year. Um, you know, it's a great experience in just learning the mechanisms of, of trading, right? And, you know, a lot of it is just, 
you know, my, my boss at that point was a crazy active trader. Uh, you know, so I would be putting in, you know, I could be putting in a few hundred orders a day, uh, managing, you know, 50 options, you know, positions, spreads. So for me, I learned the language of Wall Street. I learned how to manage a book with lots of different positions. Um, and I guess, you know, I see for me, I've always been obsessed where, where people can go wrong. Uh, less, uh, you know, obviously I'm interested in what, how people are successful, but I'm more interested in, well, why do things go bad? And so I was able to see some of my boss's habits and, and habits in the room of, well, why isn't this working? Why does this person consistently make money? Why does this guy seem to be pounding the desk in anger all the time? Um, those are the things that I picked up on. And then after a year, you know, first New York gave you a, a, a small book. So they would give you, let's say a million dollars to trade and, and, and you're on your own. You know, that's it. You, you do through osmosis. You've learned a, a style or, or certain people's styles and you have a general idea of what you think you might want to do. But, you know, when you're, when you're thrust out on your own, um, you know, you, you do feel like you're, you're flying without a net a little bit. And, uh, and I learned very quickly, um, with some pretty big losses in the beginning to, to ratchet down and, and be careful. Can we hear a little bit more about how you did go once you went out on your own? Like what sort of style did you gravitate towards and, and, you know, how did you pick things up? So my first year of full trading was 2008, I believe, either late 2007, early 2008. And, you know, as you know, things were just starting to get a little crazy. So what I ended up seeing, um, you know, in a lot of my trading was people trying to around me catch bounces. And you see this in a lot of trading firms that I notice people always want to catch a bounce or short a top or, you know, catch that mean reversion and pivot move. And that was something that I tried doing and, uh, I didn't seem to have much success with it. That's, it's such a tough game to play. Um, so I took a lot of lumps trying that strategy at first and it didn't really work for me. I saw people, you know, trying to trade sectors. So if like one bank was bad, let's say they would short all the other banks and, uh, and that didn't really work for me. But you know, you, you got to try all these various things until you, until you find something that does work. And, and in the meantime, I had to not blow up, you know, the whole game is you, you want to at that point not get fired and you want to come back and play tomorrow. And at the same time, you want to make some money. So, uh, does that you know help answer that a little bit? It does. Yeah. Let's fast forward a little bit and talk about how you're trading nowadays. I think that's probably a good way to lead on. Now, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you would probably describe yourself as an event-driven trader. I think that's how you've described yourself. Can yeah. you explain what that means and how you make money? Sure. So, if you're a new trader, you know, we'll go back to, you know, being a first-year guy. If you're a new trader and you're and you're looking at your board, there's thousands of stocks to pick from. So, where do you even begin? And and when you think about, it, I'll put it in these terms also. The idea that you know, every day Coca-Cola, we'll go back to that, Coca-Cola stock moves sometimes billions of dollars in market cap. And the only reason that happens is because the market's open. But has anything inherently changed in the value of Coca-Cola to make it do that? No, 
It's just because the market's open and, and people are trading. And, and, you know, I don't know if uh, you've ever owned a business or if your family had a business. Like I said, we had a, a seafood company, a small seafood company. The idea that that seafood company going up and down 10% on a daily basis would be crazy, but it happens in the public markets every day. So the only way that you could trade that, in my opinion, was to know what Fidelity or Vanguard or BlackRock or any of the, you know, 50 guys that actually matter are going to do that day. You can't do that. So the only way that, in, in my opinion, that I can make money on a consistent basis is by wiping my slate essentially clean every day and coming in and looking, well, what inherently changed the value of a company today, long or short, more valuable or less valuable today than it was yesterday? And there's so many factors that could make this happen. You know, we, it could be an earnings report. If it's a pharma company, it could be a drug was approved or rejected. There could be a patent ruling. There could be, uh, you know, an activist may have taken a, a stake in this and wants to push for a sale. There could have been, you know, one company A buying company B. Uh, you know, there's so many things that inherently change the value of a company every day. So I gravitate towards those names because at least it gives me a, a, a field of names to pick from where I know that there's something more than randomness that's moving the stock around. And what sort of stocks are you mostly playing in? Like, I, I think that you gravitate towards more of the, the bigger names, like the blue chip type of stocks. So the names that I'm going to traffic in, by rule, you know, eventually we have to put self-imposed rules in on ourselves, right? Otherwise, and, and these come from making big mistakes. So one of my self-imposed rules is I try to stay away from companies that have market caps of sub 500 million. And the reason for that is, A, they tend to be less liquid, and B, they tend to get manipulated. And I don't want to take part in someone else's manipulation. And so, you know, if, you, if I stick to 500 million and above, I think that things tend to act rationally. And what I mean by that is, I, I don't know, Aaron, do you play poker? Or do you play chess or any of those games? Uh, no, no, I don't. Well, if you, if you did or you talk to someone that, that plays poker or chess, um, if you play poker or chess with someone that's been playing for a while, they tend to all play by the similar strategies and similar rules. But if you play someone that's never played before or has very little experience, they do their own thing. And sometimes when I'm trading those companies that are have small market caps, it's like I'm playing poker with someone that's doing their own thing. And when I do that, things can happen that I won't anticipate because, you know, like I said, they're playing by different rules than the ones that I know how to play by. Can you just explain that a little more? Like you said that some of the smaller names can be manipulated. You don't want to play in someone else's manipulation. What do you mean? Like... In, in what sort of way can they be manipulated? Are you just sort of saying that the order book's a lot thinner and it's easy to bully the price a little bit? I mean, I say this without factual proof, but I think it's a foregone conclusion that stocks are absolutely manipulated, especially these small ones. There's, there's ways of controlling the float. There's ways of uh, knowing short interest. There's ways of knowing when sto a stock needs to be bought in. I say this mostly on, on small cap stocks that go from, you know, one or, you know, that a penny stock that goes from a dollar to, you know, 20 or whatever it is. Often these are triggered by, you know, some sort of small event. So I'll give you an example. Five years ago, and you see this in other examples, but five years ago, there was an Ebola scare in the world. And you saw a lot of these stocks, uh, maybe ones that made hazmat suits, maybe ones that made, you know, any sort of equipment that would go along these lines to help a situation like that. These companies went wild. And, 
these aren't companies, this isn't a permanent thing. These companies aren't going to have real value in 20 years, most likely, but it turns into a game that people play, you know? And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is, it, you know, you know, it's like how many, you don't want to be the last stack on that pancake stack, if that makes any sense, because it's just what, you know, people playing momentum, people, you know, one to the next to the next, hoping that someone will just buy the stock from them for higher than what they paid for it. But there's no inherent value to it. And so those situations kind of scare me. Yeah. Okay. No, fair call. Um, I think with the those Ebola stock, stocks, um, Lake might ring a bell for some. <laughs> right. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, so let's let's speak about, you know, being an event-driven trader. You said earlier on that, you know, you come to the market each day, you've got thousands of stocks in front of you to choose from you want to focus on the stocks which you believe have a reason that the value of that company is either going to increase or decrease that day. You're not trying to participate in just kind of somewhat random market movements. That's right. How do you actually go about researching and finding the type of events which uh, you'd like to get involved in? So I would say there's a few things that you can do you know, if you're trading, you need some sort of news aggregator, you know, and there's lots of platforms that will do this for you. You know, I've had subscriptions to briefing.com and street account. And, um, you know, nowadays, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, uh, they'll aggregate it for you and they'll tell you, you know, what's moving, but also really important. I mean, you should have a calendar of stuff in front of you and you should know, you know, who's reporting today and tomorrow who reported last night. Then, and this is, I'm just taking you through my morning routine, you know, so you do this and then you spend most of your time reading Wall Street notes and having access to research is so important because at the end of the day, that's what's moving stocks around. People at Fidelity, if you're a fund manager at Fidelity or Vanguard or BlackRock and you're going to make a decision whether or not to buy or sell your stock today, you're listening to Wall Street, you know, research. And so... Essentially, what we're doing as traders, right, is we're just front running fidelity. We're all doing that. And, and, and so I guess what I'm saying is 
the research and getting ahead of that is the, the most critical thing and anticipating what these big funds are going to do. So what are some of the sources which you depend on most for your research? Like, do you have, uh, do you have like access to brokers and that sort of thing, which provides you with special information or not special information, but information that isn't, you know, readily available on, you know, the front page of wall street journal. So all these banks, you know, I pay, each Wall Street bank to get their research. So, I mean, there, there, there's ways of sort of circumventing that. But at the end of the day, if you, if you want Bank of America research, you have to either pay a Bank of America broker or you have to put money in a, in a wealth management account and get their research. There's no, there's no other way to do it. I mean, there used to be ways and, you know, Bloomberg would, would turn you on temporarily or sometimes there would be a subscription that came for, you know, with your Bloomberg terminal. But, the only way to get that stuff is to pay for it. And, and with, you know, recent rules, this MIFID rule change that has really clamped down on free research, uh, is costing me a lot of money because now I've had to pony up for stuff that I didn't, you know, have to do before. And as an individual trader, you know, I, I have a, a, a fund of family office at this point, but it's just me. And you would think that. So let's use this analogy. First New York has a fund. They have 200 traders, and if they want Bank America research, they'll pay as a firm $100,000 to Bank America. If I call Bank America with one person in my office and I say, I want your research, they'll say $100,000. They don't look at it as how many terminals are going to be turned on. They look at it as this is a company and they're a company, which is crazy, but that's how they do it. Mm. So where do you get most of your research now? Uh, I mean, like in terms of, uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Like it shows up on my Bloomberg terminal. Okay. So mostly through Bloomberg. Right. Okay, cool. Now you speak a bit about earnings, but obviously earnings is only, uh, what, four times a year. Mm -hmm. What about on regular day-to-day trading? What other sort of events are you looking to get involved in? The other events I'm looking to get involved in. Well, we've been seeing a lot of activist short situations and a lot of activist long situations. So those are always something that, that, you know, is, can be very interesting. Um, I don't know if you've been following, you know, Elliott advisors. Uh, they've been very successful in a lot of recent campaigns. It just seems like there's a lot of BS though that goes around, uh, in terms of if, you know, even today I was looking, there was probably three activist short campaigns that came out on these random blogs and, you know, again, I, I try to stay away from that stuff, but, you know, as traders, I, I go where the action is. And so if the action is in these places, sometimes I feel like I'm, I guess, forced to play or sometimes I'm trading out of boredom, which is always a huge mistake. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go where that is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, what else happened. You know, earnings season does get stretched over, let's say, six weeks. But, you know, to your point, um, it's, it doesn't exist the rest of that time. You know, sometimes there might only be 10 situations to trade it, you know, on a, on a daily basis. It might have been a, a critical upgrade from an influential analyst, or it may have been, uh, a, you know, a drug approval, or it may have been a court ruling. Uh, you know, these days with politics, you never know what Trump could say that might sway an entire sector. So, there's never a shortage really of, of I'm, I'm rarely getting to the open where I'm like, I have nothing. I usually have something. 
Right. How about merger arbitrage? Is that something you do much of? So I would say I do something uh, that I would coin pre-merger arbitrage. And what I mean by that is you're sort of putting the puzzle pieces together of what a deal might look like if it happens or if it doesn't happen. And so, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, let's say a month ago, the Wall Street Journal breaks a story and they say company A to buy company B. Well, you know, then the game begins and the game starts with, okay, well, what might they pay for it? You know, let's say a stock is trading for 100. The Wall Street Journal story comes out. It's trading for 115 now. Now what do you do? So the game is, well, do I think they could be bought up for 150 or 140? What sector are they in? Is it biotech? In biotech, I might get a crazy premium. Is it, you know, that's, you know, we didn't talk about technicals here. And it's something I really stay away from. But when you get into these situations, it is important because then I look, well, well, is it possible that the story's been leaked? Did the stock ramp up into the story? And therefore, I might like it a little bit less. Then I look into, well, if a deal was to happen, would it get approved by our government? Would it get approved by foreign governments? If the deal happened, what sort of spread would it trade at? Because people would be worried that it might get blocked by a foreign government. You know, right now, there's lots of anti-China stuff, anti-US stuff happening between those two countries. And we're seeing it hurt and block deals. So all these different puzzle pieces have to come into your brain before you get involved in a name. Was an activist involved? Who's pushing for this? All these things go into my thought process before I enter a trade like that. Okay. And you called this, what was it? Pre-merger? I call it pre, pre-merger arbitrage. Okay. Can you take us through uh, an example, like a specific situation that you liked? Sure, I will. So recently, Warren Buffett... He's been a uh, 18-year holder of a company called U.S. Gypsum or USG. They make container board. He's owned it for 18 years, and they got a bid about you know five months ago from uh, a company called Knopf, which is a company in Germany, private company, does the exact same thing. And Knopf, the stock was trading for 35, USG was, and Knopf publicly bid 42, and USG rejected the bid. And Warren Buffett did something that he hasn't done in 50 years, which he, he sort of went activist in the situation. And the reason how he went activist was he's been in this situation for 18 years and the stock is flatlined, hasn't gone anywhere. And so in his mind, he said, I've owned this for 18 years. The stock hasn't gone anywhere. What right do you have to turn this bid down and probably not even consult me? He owns 35% of the company. So he went public with his displeasure in this and said he would replace the board. So now you've got a situation where your biggest holder is threatening to replace the board unless you sit down and negotiate. Now, at this point, the stock is trading around 41. Sorry, can I just interrupt you? Um, Yeah. Who declined the bid for 42? USG, the company that that got the bid, rejected it. Without they said, consulting Warren Buffett about it. Without consulting Buffett. Okay. And the reason, the reason that they rejected this bid was they said it undervalued the company and they called themselves the family of uh, the crown jewels of this housing business. So you had a company that had a really inflated view of themselves. But how can you have an inflated view of yourself if, you ha- if the stock price hasn't moved in 18 years? So... 
Buffett goes activist and forces them to sit down and negotiate. And so now you've got a lot of questions on, you know, that you, that I'm asking myself. Is there any way that they can get more than 42? Because the problem is if you're the buyer, right? If you're the company that launched that bid, you're thinking, why would I ever need to raise my bid? Warren Buffett already said take 42. So, you know, you, you can imagine this, this negotiating room where the USG says, well, we think we're worth 50. And then the German company comes back and says 42. And then they say, how about 48? And they say, how about 42? Because what leverage do you have? So, you know, the way that I was playing that was just every time the stock would get below 41, I would buy it. And the reason that I would do that is because if a deal was consummated at 42, I think I couldn't lose money. So I want to be in situations, in my opinion, where the likelihood of a deal is extremely high. And I want to buy that, you know, I want to buy that stock at a price where I know it'll trade above if it's consummated. So in that case, with a 42 deal, when I could buy it under 41, that was a good price for me. And the deal ended up happening at around 43.50. Okay. Now, I just want to ask a few questions about around this because I don't have a great handle on how these whole takeover deals actually work. So, if the stock's trading at $35, why is a company going to bid $42? Because if it's trading at $35, is that not the value of the company? Right. So, what do you get when you, when you, when you, what do you get when you own a company? So, um, you know, let's take an example using an oil company. You're getting, if, if Exxon bought, you know, a small oil company, let's say the company was trading at 20, Exxon launches a bid for 30. Why would they do that? So not only are they getting the, you know, the revenue stream, the yearly revenue stream from this oil, but they're getting the entire, what I would call their, their, their surplus of oil. You know, they, they're getting what they have in the ground and there should be a future value placed on that. And so you're buying future earnings. You know, when a one company, when one company buys another, they're buying this year's earnings. And uh, hopefully if they have a long-term plan, they're buying 50 years more worth of earnings. So that's why companies will overpay. You're getting an asset, you're getting, um, you know, and, and that asset could change if it's oil, you know, it, it's, it's obviously going to be oil, but you know, we're seeing Fox and Disney get into this huge merger. Now you're buying, you know, all these characters, you're buying movies, you're buying, you know, lots of things, you're buying brands. You know, that has value, but also just we need to be more humble and, and understand as the public markets are wrong all the time. So if, a, if, if the stock is trading for 35, the public market might be very wrong and this company sees more value. So if the stock's trading for $35 and a company comes out with a bid of 42, what's going to happen to the stock price in most cases on the, on the, on the exchange? So, I mean, obviously it, it, it will go up to reflect, to reflect that deal. You know, when a deal is signed and now we're talking once a deal is signed, now it's merger arb, right? So the deal is signed before we were playing it. That was pre-merger deal signs merger. So now it's how long is this going to take to close? Cause deals don't close, you know, with, with the snap of a finger. It takes a lot. It takes some time. Uh, sometimes there's, a, is it, is it going to be all cash? Is there a stock component to it? Um, like I said, does it need to get approval from foreign governments? There's lots of different factors and, and people will price that discount. So meaning with the stock we talked about was for 42, that discount can be, will be based on how many months it's going to take. You know, we're watching right now a deal about 
to fall apart. And it's a deal that I've been watching for 19 months, which is Qualcomm's deal to try and buy NXP Semi. And, you know, if you bought that, if you bought that deal when it was announced, you've been waiting a long time and you're down a lot of money. So you, you calculated that wrong. But how does the stock price get from 35 to 42? Like who, because it's only going to get to that price if, if people are willing to buy, buy it up to that price. You know what I mean? Well, like, let me ask you this question. If, would you pay $41 today if you got $42 in a month guaranteed? Yes. But is so there a guarantee the in, the, in the listed markets? <laughs> there's a merger there's a merger agreement yeah that's the guarantee so how do they guarantee that though how do they guarantee that the price is going to come from 35 up to 42 because that what their deal is done off market um well it's 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 a deal that's announced publicly and if you have a what i would call a real buyer so if bhp is buying a minerals company or a gas company bhp has a reputation for being a good buyer that isn't going to back out so you have to have faith that they're going to consummate the deal can you tell us a little bit about this situation uh with qualcomm and i can't remember who the other company you mentioned was um you know you said this deal's kind of falling apart at the moment i mean how are you how are you trading around that you know one of the mistakes that i've made is the uh i'll call it the cost of time being sunk in or time sunk cost the more time that I put into something, and the more money I invest in it, the more research I do with it, the harder it is for me to change my mind on it, if that makes any sense. So the short story in this, again, this is 19 months that I'm going to try to sum up in two minutes. The short story is Qualcomm tried to buy this company NXPI. They needed nine different, com- uh, they needed nine different countries to approve this deal. Eight of the nine countries uh, agreed, and one country did not, and that was China. And what ended up happening was they got it got very wound up and wrapped up in all sorts of different international conflicts that are currently happening between the United States and China and Trump and you know the prime uh, the, you know and Chairman Xi. And I have found myself uh, at points you know, head spinning over this thing. And I've gone to drastic measures to try and gain an edge in this. And the only result has been that it just made me crazy. And, you know, if you want to, I can tell you about some of these drastic measures. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and again, you have to stay within the, the confines of legality, right? You know, so the, you know, there was a point in this story um, where, the Wall Street Journal broke a story that said that Qualcomm executives were waiting for the 10-4 from China to fly over there and finalize the deal. So in my mind at that point, uh, the signal that I wanted to see was the Qualcomm plane taking off from San Diego, California and going to China. And now there's various services that track these sort of private planes. Uh, but in this case, that wasn't possible. And the reason that wasn't possible was because Qualcomm themselves blocks the tail number on their plane. So the next thing that the only other option you have then at this point is, and again, this was a story that I had made up in my head, uh, was that 
the only way to track this plane is to physically be out there in San Diego and watch it take off. And so I literally just posted a, uh, we have something called TaskRabbit. I don't know if you guys have that there, but. We've got something similar, yeah. Okay, so I posted something on TaskRabbit and the TaskRabbit post read something like, um, go to this airport and watch this plane take off and send me a video of it. And, and I got a response in about 15 seconds. And this woman who was, uh, you know, just a mother of three, she would drop her kids off at school and she would go to the airport and she sat there at the airport for me day after day after day after day. And she was probably there for like a week. And I had to deal with her. And the deal was this. I'm going to pay you X, you know, this much a day. And if you get a video of this plane taking off, I'll give you this bonus money, this big bonus money. And she calls me a week later and she says, it's happening. And, you know, you're probably wondering, well, how did I know where the plane was going? Right. That's the big question. They have this plane. How would I know? And the thing is, you don't. But the way that and again, I was making a lot of this up, perhaps um, Qualcomm has two planes. Uh, one is for short distances and one is for long distances. And uh, so I was tracking the big one. And the big one took off, and she sent me a video of this. And, of course, she sent me the video of this at, like, 3.45 on a Friday, where I have 15 minutes to make up my mind of what I want to do with this situation. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, that's the kind of stuff that can make you crazy. And because you think you have this piece of information that no one has, you think, well, what if it happens this weekend and I don't take advantage of it? Uh, so I had better do that now. And not only that, but I was so mentally wrapped up in this thing. I was so like emotionally committed to it, like it was a person, this trade, that I, that I wasn't thinking rationally. And of course, I ended up putting on a large position. The deal is still not happening. And, uh, you know, it's, it's probably taken a few years off my life just watching this situation unfold. Right. Man, that's a crazy story. <laughs> have you, uh, have you done things like that in the past? Like other situations um, where you've kind of done some, I don't know, stakeouts excessive, or... Excessive due diligence? Yeah, yeah, let's call it that. Nothing to that extreme. Okay. You know, nothing to that extreme. I mean, a lot of this job, in my opinion, is, you know, you could call it getting lucky, but you have to be on these conference calls. You have to, like, be in the game. Like, don't be lazy. You know, one of the, one of the best trades I ever had, I was just, I happened to be a bit lucky, but I happened to be on this, uh, lumber liquidators, which is sort of like a, a lumber supply company, uh, conference call in, in, you know, 2014 or 2015. And they happened to mention in the call for, you know, at complete random that they were going to be, uh, on a show called 60 Minutes, which is an investigative journalism show that Sunday. And, and it was like, you know, a grenade went off in the middle of this call. And one of the analysts, you know, it was an earnings conference call. Suddenly no one cares about the earnings. And, and they said, well, what's, you know, what, what's the deal? Why, why are you going to be on 60 minutes? And he said, well, you know, I can't really describe, you know, the contents of it, but I will say this. I, I, I stand by the safety of our wood, you know, which implies, oh shit. Well, the whole segment's going to be that the wood's not safe. And you probably had five to six minutes before this hit, you know, the Bloomberg wires and all the major news wires. And, you know, in trading, that's an eternity. Five or six minutes is an eternity. 
And, you know, it's, I did great in it, but you look back and you say, well, man, like I could have done this or I could have done that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is one of the things to always remember is just don't sit on your hands, like get in there, like be on every call that you can get on, like just, just be there. So when you got that information, how did you actually build a trade around that? Did you just instantly go short the stock or was there something more to it? In that situation, and again, I've replayed this in my head, oh, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. I mean, at that point, the stock was trading for 69. You could have shorted it all you wanted down to, let's say, there was unlimited, you know, there was unlimited amount of liquidity in this name till, you know, 65. And at that point, I think it was still like uh, maybe down small on the day. And just so you know, on Monday after that segment, the stock opened at 30. So, wow. you know, you, there's lots of things I could have done. You know, I could have bought puts that were going to expire the following Friday and, you know, before the ball and the puts had exploded. There was lots of things I could have done. What I did was just sort the stock outright because in the moment, you know, when it's happening, you just think, what's the easiest way for me to get exposure? Yeah. Wow. Man, that's that's incredible. Reflecting on your career, just moving off, you know, kind of the, the merger stuff a little bit. Just reflecting on your trading career, what's some of the times where you've really messed up? Sure. When I get in trouble, when I screw up, it's because I sort of veer out of the lane of what I'm good at. And what I mean by that is at this point, trading for 12 years, I'm good at these events. I'm good at you know analyzing some earnings. I'm good at following the research. That's what I'm good at. All the stuff we talked about before. When I get into trouble is when I decide, you know, I'm going to trade uh, S&P 500 ETFs today, or I'm going to trade the bond market today because, you know, Trump's saying this and, and interest rates are going to go this way and the Federal Reserve is going to go this way. And, you know, I mean, listen to the way what I'm saying right now. I mean, this is so not in my wheelhouse. I shouldn't be involved in it. And, you know, at this point, I, I think I'm pretty good at these event names. That's something that I think I'm better at than, than a lot of other people. So then think about it. When I'm veering out of my lane and I'm going and, and I'm trading macro stuff, trading bonds, trading S&P 500 ETFs, I'm getting into someone's lane where they're really good at it and I don't know much. And when I do that stuff, I'm going to lose because I'm playing against people that know more than I do. And so that's when I get into a lot of trouble. Now, that being said, you know, this is important. The only way to expand your horizons is to try and do this stuff, right? Like you, 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 if you're the first year trader and you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like, well, how do I know what I'm good at yet? You don't. And the only way to learn is, is you do veer out of your lane a little bit and you try it, but you got to start small. That's all I'm saying. You start small and you gradually go up and you see where you, where you gravitate towards and, and, and what you end up being good at. Yeah. Yeah, you got to experiment a little bit. You got to experiment a little bit, you know. But you know, today, and this is something I, I still fall susceptible to this. You know, sometimes it's because I'm, I'm it's out of boredom. You know, as a trader, I'm always like, when a trade is done, my mentality is, okay, well, what's the next one? And sometimes there is no next one. You know, one of the hardest things about the, in this business is sitting on your hands and doing nothing, being patient, and 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 I know what a good trade looks like when I see it. But sometimes I don't want to wait for that. So I said, uh, I, you know, I'm just going to manufacture a, a trade on my own. And, you know, doing that in a sleepy market, 
you know, that could be dangerous. Um, you know, an, another thing that is a really dangerous game that's gotten me into a lot of trouble is when I decide that I'm going to either short good news or I'm going to buy bad news. And, and that's a game where I've decided as the trader, well, this is up too much. Even though the news is good, this is up too much. And when it's bad, I say, well, it's bad. The news is really bad, but I don't think it should be down 20%. I think it should be down 15%. And, you know, that's a, that's a crazy game. Cause let's get, you know, let's go back. Let's get into the heads of fidelity again. If fidelity is selling, they're selling and they're probably not going to stop selling if it's down 20% versus 15%. So you're getting in front of this freight train hoping that, you know, buyers, you know, the buyers show up or fidelity stops. So, you know, that's something that always has tended to get me in trouble. I've had big losses doing that. You know, tr- you know, envy has been, it hurts me. Envy's real bad. If I'm sitting next to someone and they're trading a product that I don't understand and they're making a lot of money from it, you know, I didn't trade Bitcoins and all these cryptocurrencies, but I know a lot of people that did and they made a lot of money and I was certainly tempted to do it. But that temptation was just out of envy because I, you know, I wanted to be making that money. And if I did start trading that stuff and losing, then I would have, you know, I would have been kicking myself. If I lost one dollar short, you know, buying Bitcoin, I would have been so mad at myself. Yeah. <laughs> because it's not something I understand at all. You know, and you know, I, I don't want to just keep. I, I'll just keep bringing up points and not uh, keep going. <laughs> things that have, things that have hurt me. But when I have an idea, you know, if I think something's a buy, one thing that I tend to do is, and this is a big mistake, is I try to find things that agree with my point of view. So if, if a company had really good earnings reports, what I'll do is, and sometimes this is conscious or, or subconscious, I'll find the, earn, the research notes from Goldman Sachs and Bank of America that reinforce my viewpoint, and I'll ignore the ones that disagree with me. And the reason that I'm doing that is just because you know I, I want to be right and I want people to agree with me. But the, but the truth of it is I shouldn't be doing that. I should be listening to all different vantage points and all different viewpoints. Um, you know, it's, you know, that, that can get me in a lot of trouble. Um, my tendency is, is, is to hold on to losers longer than I should. You know, I'm sure that people who come on your show probably talk about that all the time. I hold on when I, you know, I get into trouble when I hold on to my losers longer than I should. And the main reason I do that, honestly, is because I'm trying to preserve my ego because I don't want to admit defeat yet. If I don't, cover a position that's a loss or don't sell a position that's a loss, there's a slight chance that it'll come back and go the way that I want it to go. And how often does that happen? Rarely, right? If I put on a position, it's a slippery slope. If I'm putting on a position at 930 and at one o'clock, it's way against me, I should get out. But eh, I'm going to hold on till four o'clock because I don't want to admit defeat yet. And what ends up happening, it usually is at its most worst against me by four o'clock. Yeah, yeah, when it just rips up into the close. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right, Michael. Well, let's um let's leave it there. Uh, there is one other thing I do want to ask you about. Uh, yeah. I believe you've also started a podcast recently. So if you like or want to learn more about event trading and about activism and about these names that I'm trafficking in, uh, I do have a podcast and it's called According to Sources. Um, you can find me at according to sources podcast.com or you can find me on Twitter at, at accord to to sources. 
And, you know, the reason that I started this is very simple. One, it, you know, it's a, it, I like the medium. I told you I love the radio and, and, I, and that's something, if I wasn't doing this as a trader, that's what I'd be doing. But the second reason is, like I said, I follow Wall Street research and there is a humongous void in this area of Wall Street research. No one is covering this. If you want to know what the spread's going to be when, you know, Shire gets bought by Takeda, I can't tell you how much bad information that I'm paying for. Now, I'm paying Bank of America $100,000 a year for bad information. I would rather be the media in this case, be the person that posts about this stuff. Sometimes I'll post stuff, you know, I'll end up being wrong, which is a good thing because what ends up happening is people wrote me and say, hey, you're missing this. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's great. I, what I'm doing is I'm opening up the conversation. And that's why I think it's important. It, you know, the, this is a sector, like I said, billions upon billions of dollars trade in this every day. The people that cover it, these event desks, don't know anything for the most part. So I'm looking for a conversation to get started and I'm looking for people to, you know, to write to and to write me back and just to, just to open this up a bit more, uh, so that we can all understand things that are happening. And are you having guests on your show? I do. Okay. I do have guests on the show. What sort of guests are they? Like, what sort of things do they do? So the event tray, the head of the event desk at Nomura is coming on next week. Uh, we're just going to, you know, what we're just going to go through a bunch of different situations. Uh, the reason that it's called according to sources um, is because I do want to talk to the journalists that break this story. So uh, my goal is to have guests on from the Wall Street Journal and other media outlets. I would love eventually to have bankers. Um, you know, sometimes some people might have to come under the cloak of anonymity. You know, that's just, you know, something I'll understand. But, you know, to specifically highlight these stories and talk to the journalists, you know, about, you know, things like, you know, if the Wall Street Journal came on, one of the questions I would ask them is, well, why does the story get leaked? You know, what's the motivation? When company A is buying company B, how does that story get out to the paper and why? And th there's so many reasons that could be. The CEO might just want, it could be ego. The CEO might want his, his picture on the cover of the journal. But it might be because he wants to see how his stock's going to react when the market sees that he's going to buy this company. There's, there's lots of different ways and things that are happening and dynamics at play. And I just want to learn about it. And, uh, and so that's why I'm doing this. Okay. Yeah, cool. So if someone wants to check that out, according to tosources.com, that's the best link? It's, uh, it's according to sourcespodcast.com. Uh, according to sourcespodcast.com. Cool. Well, guys, make sure you check that out. Michael, thank you very much for doing the podcast. It's been, uh, it's been very interesting. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Aaron. Have a great one. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.